Well, good morning, everybody. It was a great day yesterday and a lot of fun in here this morning. I didn't get the memo that we were supposed to wear Hawaiian shirts. I just happened to wear a flowered shirt, so glad to be fitting in. This has been a blast so far, and particularly with what I'm going to be uh, talking about today, uh, the music also lined up, and I'll explain why in just a few minutes. Um, but let me open up our time with a word of prayer as we prepare to enter into God's word. God, we are just so grateful to you. We recognize that we come before you every time we do as a people who have received an abundance of your riches and your lavish treasures in Christ. And so we just want to pause right now and give thanks and recognize that everything that we have is a good gift from your hand, that you are indeed the father of eternal lights with whom there's no shifting shadow due to change or variation and that every good gift comes from your hand. And so, God, we ask that this morning, as we enter into your word, that we would receive the gift of your word by your spirit through our rootedness in Jesus, and that we would hear from you this morning, and that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened in our faith. And we ask all of it because of Jesus. Amen. So a few weeks ago, we took our kids to Chicago for one of the few family vacations we've been able to do. Chicago represent, love the Windy City. Now that we live on this side of the country, we've begun to explore some of those types of places, and Chicago was a great gift. We went to the Shedd Aquarium and the Museum of Science and Industry, and of course, having kids that are our kids' ages, 13, 10, and 10, the gift shop was the highlight of the trip. And I realized that in shopping for gifts uh, or for souvenirs from these trips, that our kids had very different interests than I did when I was their age. I am a self-identified nerd. And so where my kids were interested in the toys and the trinkets and the gadgets and the t-shirts with the logos and all of those kinds of things, when I recalled what I used to want to get as souvenirs when I went away on trips, partly growing up in Eastern Europe, but mostly just because I'm a nerd, what I really wanted were Russian nesting dolls of former Soviet leaders. So... I've got them here. This is Yeltsin on one side, the last leader of the Soviet Union. On the reverse is Gorbachev with that funky map of we're not even sure what it is on his forehead. And then as you open up the dolls, we've got Brezhnev. And then after him, Khrushchev. And for some reason, and I've never had this explained to me, Khrushchev always is pictured in a corncob suit. Don't ask me why, but that's his style wearing it boldly, and then behind him is Stalin, and then at the very center is itty bitty Lenin, the one who started it all. <laughs> Russian nesting dolls are a lot of fun. We had several sets as uh, kids growing up in our household, most of them the traditional type with one version of the babushka all the way down, but the ones with the Soviet leaders were always particularly interesting to me. I taught history before I became a pastor, and so I used this set of dolls to teach Russian history to my students. It just seemed like a fun way to go about doing that. But what they do is they reveal what's at the heart of something, what's at the foundation, what started it all, and you work backwards. You ask the question, how did we get to Yeltsin, and you trace it all the way back to Lenin. The really large sets, that the biggest one is this large, go all the way down to Tsar Nicholas II, who was overthrown by the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. And so it reveals, it unveils, it explains the reality that we currently experience by going back into the past. 
The biblical word for that is apocalypse, and I've been thinking a lot about apocalypse for the last 18 months. A lot of people have used the term apocalyptic of the last 18 months. And that word in Greek simply means an unveiling, a revealing, an exposing of what lies underneath. And I think it's very accurate to say that the last 18 months have been exactly that. They have revealed, they have unveiled, they've peeled back the curtain on what's really underneath our culture, our society, our churches. We found out what really matters to us, what's important. We found out how we operate. A lot of things have been exposed. And as I talked about yesterday, we're going to spend time in the book of Isaiah, the longest of the prophets. And one of the things that prophets do is exactly that work. They peel back the curtain. They expose what lies underneath. They reveal what's going on in society, but they also reveal what's going on in the deeper reality of the creation that God has inaugurated. And while Isaiah is not one that does a lot of that work, he does have a brief section that commentators call a little apocalypse, and that resonates with me for some reason. And as I've dug into these four chapters, it's Isaiah 24 through 27, we're not going to work through the whole thing, but if you want to turn there, we'll be looking at some highlights from it, from these four chapters. This is Isaiah's journey into what lies beneath, what is underneath the reality that the people of Israel, but also all humans in all times, are experiencing. And one of the things that Apocalypse does is it tries to answer the question of what the meaning of everything is. That's one of the reasons I think we're fascinated with apocalyptic passages. We're very familiar with the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel that has a lot of similarities, and those are apocalyptic books, and we're fascinated with them because we want to believe that our lives are part of a larger reality, a larger story, that we are caught up in something grand and significant. And I think part of the reason for that is because when we confront our everyday existence... And we see that things change, oftentimes on a dime and almost never without our permission or will. Our lives seem chaotic. Our lives seem unpredictable. And oftentimes we can feel that there isn't meaning or purpose. And so we're drawn to things that tell us that we are caught up in something bigger than ourselves. That there is a direction that things are going. That our lives are not just one thing after another with an inevitable end in death. But what we want to believe in our experience live in this tension. And the biblical authors, and Isaiah is one of them, want to assure us that yes, indeed, our lives are caught up in something bigger and grander than ourselves, that the chaos that we see around us, that we experience on a regular basis, is not the deepest reality. So yesterday, we looked at two songs. We looked at a love song and a funeral song. And I mentioned that when we come to Scripture, we're not just coming to one kind of thing. I think a lot of times we come to Scripture and we expect that we're just reading systematic theology, we're reading doctrine, we're reading philosophy, those kinds of things. And actually, what I've found is that very little of Scripture fits into those categories. That a lot of Scripture falls into a lot of different categories, and many of them are the realm not of academics, but of artists. I've been struck, particularly as I've spent time in the book of Isaiah, that we as the people of God, we as the church in the 21st century, at least in America and the West, have leaned into academics to inform our faith. But that scripture is a world populated at least as much by artists. And I wonder what we are missing as the people of God by not platforming 
artists that are engaged in creative work. And I would suggest that to understand Isaiah 24 to 27, as well as the other apocalyptic books of the scriptures, Daniel and Revelation among them, we need to understand that we are not dealing with straightforward statements of theology and doctrine. We're dealing with poetry. We're dealing with art. We're dealing with creatives. And they tell the story differently. And we don't deal with art the way we deal with a systematic theology. And if we do, we get into some mischief in terms of misunderstanding the meaning. So, Isaiah's little apocalypse addresses three things. And the first is the problem that humanity faces. Israel, at the time that Isaiah lived and taught and wrote, was experiencing all kinds of chaos, all kinds of uncertainty. They had been in this period of great power and wealth and stability under Solomon, and in the last 200 years, it has all progressively eroded. Great powers are arising on the scene, and we're going to talk about that later tonight in Isaiah 30, some of the specific crises that Israel is facing. But Isaiah wants to speak to that by positioning those crises in a larger story, by saying that Israel's chaos, Israel's uncertainty, the uncertainty that you and I experience in our daily lives, what can at times feel chaotic, is part of what the entire earth, all of God's creation, again, we're titling this series, All the Earth, is undergoing. And nowhere is that clearer in Isaiah's little apocalypse than in the first verse of chapter 27. When Isaiah says, in that day, and, and that day is the prophetic term for the day when Yahweh, when the God of creation, the God revealed in the Hebrew texts, when he acts to set things right, in that day, Yahweh, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the seas. So, I mentioned that the music last night and this morning overlapped. We sang last night that God is the one who created the sea creatures. And today we sang about the hippopotamus that God created. The hippopotamus is something that we regard as cute. To ancient peoples, it was terrifying. And if I've understood things correctly, hippopotamus, hippopotami are actually among the most deadly and dangerous creatures on earth. They are not cute and cuddly. But scripture is filled with language about these creatures and the danger that they pose. That song about the hippopotamus is drawn from the poetry of Job. When God wants to say to Job, think about who you've been talking to this whole time. I created the hippopotamus, behemoth. I created Leviathan. This creature that Isaiah mentions here is brought forward and is said to be a serpent and a dragon. Now, I was well served growing up in the church. My mom was an Awana commander. I was at Awano every Wednesday night. I was at church every Sunday. I was in Sunday school, and no one ever told me about dragons. And I think that's a miss. So if I'm speaking to any Sunday school teachers in the room, tell your kids when you get back into your churches that here there be dragons. Because nothing fascinates a child's mind more than dragons. And we are a people of the book. And the book tells us that at the center of the story, when Yahweh shows up to redeem creation, it's going to involve slaying a dragon. Three times the verse says it. He will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. 
we want to make sense of why this is significant, we need to talk about serpents and seas. So the ancient Israelites, like all ancient people, regarded the earth, not the way we do, as a round globe spinning through space, but as a flat disk with edges, and the edges were dangerous. The edge of the map was a dangerous place. Before Columbus and the European explorers set out to encounter the rest of the known world, they would mark the edges of their maps with the phrase, here there be sea monsters, here there be dragons. It was a place of terror for them. The world was dangerous and it was ringed by seas. The Israelites envisioned that at the center of the map is the land that humans inhabit and it is surrounded by the seas and the sea is a place of chaos and terror. Now, as a native Southern Californian and as someone enjoying the beauty of this lake, which in the ancient audience's mind is also a sea. Think of the Sea of Galilee or the Dead Sea. If it's a body of water that isn't moving in a direction like a river, it is a sea. They would not understand our fascination with water and they would totally be confounded by our property value system. Wait, so the most expensive properties (laughs) are the ones by the water. And you want to get into the water? You want to take boats for pleasure and rec- Don't you know what's out there? Don't you know what the sea can do to us puny humans? We try to stay as far away as possible, and only the bravest among us actually go out on the water. And think about how many times in Scripture there are scenes of boats, and every time somebody's on a boat, we know what happens. Huge storm! And the boat is in jeopardy of sinking and everyone's in danger of perishing. There are at least four such narratives that I can think of in scripture. Jonah, two with Jesus and the disciples in the gospels, repeated by the way, and then Paul at the end of Acts. And in every instance, no one dies because God shows up. You see, Scripture has something to say to an ancient audience terrified by the sea. We don't share their terror of the sea, but I would venture to guess that at times we feel that the boundaries of our lives are surrounded by chaotic and uncontrollable forces that threaten to do us harm. And our tendency is to try to stay as close to the center as possible and hope that those forces don't break in and terrorize us. The story of creation is where this imagery begins. Remember how Genesis starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep to home, the sea, the realm of chaos. And to an ancient audience, that narrative, the next step in that narrative is that the forces of chaos rise up against the God to try to stop them from imposing order and bringing about stability in the natural world. And there's a great battle between the gods and the forces of chaos, these serpent creatures. All of Israel's neighbors had these stories, but Israel's story doesn't start that way. The Spirit of God hovers as a nurturing mother bird over the surface of the deep, not threatened and not overpowering. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And a few verses later, God said, let the waters above be separated from the waters below. And he just sets boundaries. And the Psalms over and over again celebrate the reality that God is the one who speaks and the sea has to mind the boundary that God has set for it just by the power of his word. But then when humanity goes astray, you remember what happens. God 
releases those boundaries. The windows of heaven open and the waters that had been held above the vault of the sky since creation come crashing down and the waters of the deep break through the foundations of the earth and all of creation is subjected once again to the waters of chaos and a flood. When the people of Israel are freed from Egypt, you remember that after they were released from Pharaoh, they faced a much more daunting obstacle right away. And it was a sea. And they were terrified because they were caught quite literally between the devil and the deep red sea. And Moses tells them, don't be afraid. God will deliver you. And they walk along dry ground through the sea. I mentioned Jonah, the prophet who's at sea, fleeing from the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And when he tells the sailors that that's his God, they are greatly terrified. You serve a God who created this and you're disobeying him and fleeing into the sea, literally trying to get to the edge of the map? Are you crazy? And yes, Jonah was crazy, but that's a sermon for another time. And then finally, Revelation, the end of the story. And again, I have to believe in the goodness of God as a Southern Californian, but John tells us very clearly in Revelation that when the new heavens and new earth are established, there will be no sea. And I want to believe that human happiness can be achieved without oceanfront property. I believe that God is good. God said it. I have to accept it. But no sea doesn't sound good to me, but it would have sounded amazing to an ancient audience. Not only will the sea have a boundary that it can't transgress, it just won't be there anymore. There will just be a river of life. So what does this chaos look like? What does it do? So yesterday I introduced a different translation um, from a scholar that I don't know personally but have benefited from. Today I'm going to introduce you to a member of my congregation. I am extremely privileged at Berean by all of the members of my congregation. And as I mentioned, I'd never touched the prophets before. It's strange territory. And so when we started our series, I invited the members of my congregation to help me with it. Imagining that, as I said, the word of God and the spirit of God and the people of God are enough to hear what God is saying to the church. And I got some amazing contributions from the members of my church, but Glenn Kerr, who is a Bible translator and a member of my church, so trust me when I say that whenever I bust out Hebrew or Greek in my preaching, I am very careful to make sure that I'm right with a Bible translator sitting in the congregation. He offered me his translation of some of the passages in Isaiah 24. I want to share them with you. And again, like the translation I shared yesterday, he's trying to bring out the Hebrew poetry. This is the chaos picture Isaiah paints. The earth wails and pales. The world wastes and withers. The cream of earth's people disappear. The earth has become rotten right under those who live on it because they have broken the laws, changed the standard, and destroyed the eternal covenant. That is why the curse eats up the earth and condemns its inhabitants. That is why heat burns them up and leaves so few behind. Later on in verse 18, the chaos is described this way. Open will come heaven's floodgates and earth's foundations will quake. The earth is breaking with breaks, shaking with shakes, and quaking with quakes. This does speak to my Californian heart. We're all about shaking and baking. The earth will stagger like a drunk and sway like a hut. Its sins weighing heavy on it, falling and not coming up again. Hopefully you can appreciate that this is not an academic work of systematic theology. This is the language of the artist. This is the language of the poet. Here there be dragons and earthquakes and floods and fires. 
giving us a picture, not a technical description of what chaos is like. It evokes emotions. Those images are meant to astound us and terrify us because we ought to be terrified by the results we see around us on a daily basis in our own lives and in the world around us. As I speak, my beloved home state is on fire and not for the first time. Second largest wildfire in its history. Whole towns that have stood for over a century have been destroyed. These verses ring true for me. And I think for any of us, especially over the last 18 months, we can appreciate the emotions that Isaiah is trying to draw out. But you notice he uses a couple of terms here. He talks about the earth, but then he also talks about the world. The earth wails and pales, the world wastes and withers. The earth is the ground you and I inhabit. In our terminology, it's the planet we live on. The world is the people we live on. I think of how John uses that term. The world is the human occupants, the structures and societies and communities that they've established. That's the world. The earth is the physical place. And so notice that the curse eats up the earth. I said yesterday, and I'm going to revisit this theme throughout this series because I think it's really important. I think it's at the heart of what Isaiah is saying, and I think we need to hear it. That as we imagine what God is like, God's posture toward us, it is easy to imagine a God who is angry, a God whose primary posture is one of disappointment and wrath towards us because of our sin, but that God's love somehow pushes against that. And I just want to suggest that at the start of the story is not God's anger and our failure. It is so easy for us to start the story in Genesis 3. But the story starts in Genesis 1, that good word that I left us with yesterday, that God's intention is to bless us because God's primary posture towards us is one of love. And that's why it's really significant, and it wasn't until a couple of years ago, and I say this as someone who grew up in the church and is seminary educated and spent most of my life in the employ of churches, that it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I realized that God didn't curse us in the fall. Go back and read Genesis 3 carefully. The curse is only given to two things. The serpent, the one that Yahweh will slay with his hard and great and terrible sword on that day, and the earth. That's what gets cursed. God doesn't revoke the blessing of Genesis 1. We're just living with natural fallout consequences of the fact that we have broken the earth. And so the earth is wailing and paling. The earth is being eaten up by the curse and the earth is condemning its inhabitants. Incidentally, I am not a geophysicist, I am not a climatologist, and I try to stay in my lane, but I am a student of scripture, and I just want to say that if any group on earth should understand that human activity causes the earth to lash out against us, that's the central message of scripture, is that we were entrusted with the care and stewardship of God's good creation, and we blew it. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the creation has been groaning ever since, waiting for us, the children of glory, to be revealed so it will be cared for once again. I love that Mr. Tumnus got invoked earlier. It was he that said that it wasn't that Narnia was right unless a son of Adam and daughter of Eve sat on the thrones of Care Paravel. That's straight out of the Bible, people. 
Until we, as the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, steward creation well, we can expect the sorts of things we see around us. And so we live in a world of chaos, and we started it. We did it. That's the problem. What's the solution? It's not us. It is Yahweh's life. The central theme of scripture is this story that the God of eternity, the self-existent God, three persons in one being, was not content for the love that they shared to remain within them. You see, love always prompts an outward look. It always prompts a sharing. And so God created for no other reason than to invite others into the blessing of what the Trinity experienced. And so we were created as image bearers to steward the blessing and the love, and it's encapsulated in the idea of life. Yahweh is the living God, the God in whom there is life. We'll have more to say about that this evening as we look at Isaiah 30. But it is Yahweh's life that will overturn the death that we have unleashed, that we have wreaked on ourselves and on creation. And so as Isaiah in this apocalypse paints a picture of the problem and the solution, says this in verse 1 of 26, 21 of 26, excuse me, for behold, Yahweh is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth, you and me, for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. The word punish in Hebrew, or the word punish in English that translates this Hebrew word, literally means to visit. And the visit, right, this is, so when you say grandma and grandpa are coming for a visit, that has a certain connotation. When you say my in-laws are coming for a visit, same people, different connotation perhaps. I have a great relationship with my in-laws, so it's a good thing either way, but I know people, asking for a friend, that when their in-laws come to visit, the kids are excited, grandma and grandpa are coming, the in-law, a little bit of fear and trepidation, perhaps. When Yahweh visits, hmm, ambiguous. It depends on your standing. It depends on what you've done. And so here, Yahweh is coming out from his place to visit the inhabitants of the earth. And what will Yahweh find when he visits? Well, we're told what Yahweh finds when he visits. What Yahweh finds is iniquity. A breach of the standard that God has set. A failure to properly care for the creation. But remember that the creation is not all of one thing. There's all the things we sang about that God created, but ultimately God created humanity as the image of God. And what has happened is that humanity has purposefully destroyed and marred the image of God in itself. Bloodshed has been the fallout of the fall from day one. Adam and Eve eat the fruit and are separated from the tree of life and they begin to experience death. But the very next thing that happens in the story is Cain murders his brother Abel. And what's really interesting about that is the reason Cain did it. Cain did it because he didn't like that God accepted Abel. How much of our hatred and enmity on earth is over who we think is acceptable to our vision of what God is like? And so Yahweh visited Cain, Genesis 4, and said, what have you done? Incidentally, someone pointed this out recently to me, that it's impossible to translate tone of voice. 
And that tone of voice has a lot to do with how we understand scripture. So you hear the tone that I just used. What have you done? That's a very different tone than what have you done? Changes the meaning, doesn't it? Is God angry or grieved? Is he angry because he's grieved? I think it's a what have you done? Because Yahweh seeks him out. And it's clear that when Yahweh sought Cain out the first time, after he was not accepted for his sacrifice, that Yahweh is pleading for Cain to recognize the path that he's on, the path of destructiveness. That sin is crouching like a lion at his door, but he must master it, and Cain fails to master it. So Yahweh shows up now. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And Cain experiences much trouble in his life from the ground. And this is the great reversal. Remember that we are made from the dust of the earth. Forty-two times I've stood at a graveside and said the words. And as someone who doesn't usually follow ritual and formula just because I still find this formula incredibly meaningful, ashes to ashes, dust to dust not as a fatalistic way of looking at life as a natural cycle it's what I say next that is most important that Jesus by the resurrection power within him will transform this decaying body and raise it anew from the ground into a body like unto his glorious resurrection body we were created from the ground and now Cain has put his brother in the ground and the ground has had to swallow the blood and in Hebrew, the words blood and ground are very similar, Adam and Dom. And so there's a word play here that God is using. Look at how wrong this is what you have done. And the ground has swallowed it up. And so in Numbers, as the people prepare to enter the good land that God has promised, Yahweh says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. It is violence that prompts God to unleash the waters of chaos on the earth in Noah's day. And I would suggest to us that violence from the start of the story to the end is the chief problem. If we want to see this, the primary indicator that we are sin sick and that the world is cursed, it is the prevalence of violence at all times in all places, whether we acknowledge it or not, because it is an assault on the image of God. But the story doesn't end there. It is Yahweh's life, Yahweh's life that he gave to humanity that he wants to restore. And so in verses 21 through 23 of Isaiah 24, Yahweh says this, On that day, Yahweh will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For Yahweh of armies reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. This is the other thing that strikes me about scripture. And the way that scripture tells the story. Yes, we are responsible. We are our brothers and sisters keepers. And we have failed to keep them. We've instead visited violence upon them. But God says that we've also been taken captive. That there are other forces in play. Leviathan the serpent is the primary target of God's great and powerful sword, Isaiah said. And here he says he will punish the host of heaven in heaven. What Paul calls the spiritual powers of this present darkness. 
the authorities and rulers that have enslaved humanity, the ones that Paul says in Colossians, Jesus has disarmed by the cross, triumphing over them. In that day, Yahweh will put their work to, end, to an end permanently. And so Isaiah says that it's those hosts and the kings of the earth who have been doing their bidding, bringing about violence and oppression. And God is going to begin to set things right. And then this passage in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the mountain in Jerusalem where Yahweh of armies will reign, Yahweh of armies will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. I want to pause there for just a moment. Food is a big deal in Scripture, which is really awesome for me because I'm a huge foodie, and I've loved the food here. This is not camp food. Can I get an amen? Over and over and over, from beginning to end. Again, I'd encourage you as you read through the scriptures, look at the things that show up from beginning to end over and over. God begins by giving us food. His first words to us is about eating. I've given you every plant for food. And when God redeems the people out of Egypt and brings them into the wilderness, of course, he feeds them for 40 years with bread from heaven. But he also gives them a system of worship that I think we've woefully misunderstood. We think of the sacrificial system as this thing where I bring this really precious, valuable animal, I slaughter it and burn it. Huge waste. That's how I grew up thinking of the sacrificial system. Read it carefully. Of the five sacrifices, there's only one that that is the fate. Everything else is barbecue. Deuteronomy 14 through 16 describe tabernacle worship. When you come to the tabernacle, you bring an animal and you bring, and I hope this isn't scandalous, but it's in the Bible, so I'm gonna say it, Wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and come and celebrate before me at my house. You and your family and your servants and the sojourner and the widow and the orphan with you. So I have a question. When someone says, come over to my house, BYOB, what is that? What are you being invited to? party thank you it's okay to say it in church in fact I'm convinced that if we were as faithful as scripture as we ought to be church services would feel a lot more like parties the stuff we're doing here at camp jumping and dancing and celebrating shouldn't just be at camp and I say that as someone whose vertical leap got tested this morning and that was it okay that's what I am capable of but I don't do this at church that'd get me look at people looking at me we're Baptists, we don't move much. <laughs> Worship is a party, it's a great celebration. It's to say, I'm bringing what God has given me from his good hand and enjoying it in his presence with hearts abounding in thanksgiving. And at the end of the story, that's exactly what God does. He establishes a feast. And it's not camp food. Rich food, full of marrow and of aged wine, well refined. Jesus' first miracle keeps the party going. It's in the Bible. How often in Scripture is there a scarcity of food? And God shows up and doesn't say, learn to do without. This is good for your spiritual discipline to learn what suffering is about. No. Every time there's scarcity of food, God shows up and provides food. More than enough. 
Enough for leftovers. He provides a feast. And so Robert Alter translates Isaiah 27, 2 through 6 this way. On that day, that day when God shows up, slays the serpent, visits the powers and the rulers that have been visiting violence on God's good creation. On that day, a lovely vineyard. Remember yesterday we had a song about the vineyard. God's love song for his vineyard and grief over the fact that it's producing spoiled, rotten grapes. A lovely vineyard. Sing out to it. I, Yahweh, watch over it. Moment by moment, I watch it. So no harm come to it. Night and day, I watch over it. No anger do I have. Underline it. Should one give me thorns and thistles, I would stride out and battle against it. I would set it on fire. Nobody touches my vineyard. If they cling to my stronghold, they make peace with me. They make peace with me. That's not a typo. It says it twice. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Now we have a motion for it. Israel shall bud and flower, and the face of the world shall fill with bounty. God restores the vineyard that has failed to produce the fruit God was looking for, the fruit of justice. The theme continues throughout Scripture. By the way, Isaiah is all about Jesus, in case you didn't know. I am the true vine, Jesus said. I am the faithful and truthful vine that Israel was supposed to be. And my father is the vine dresser. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus opens the way for us to be this vineyard, a foretaste of the vineyard that Yahweh establishes on that day. And the fruit that Jesus is looking for, the fruit that Jesus produces is love. And don't think for one moment that's different than the justice and righteousness that Yahweh was looking for from the vineyard of Israel. They are one and the same because when we love others, we seek the things that are for their flourishing. We refuse to put up with injustice and violence. And the result of this, the problem of chaos that Yahweh's life breaks in and establishes what was intended from the beginning is simply humanity's joy. It sounds like this. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice in his salvation. This is the declaration of the people of God. This is our God. We have waited, and God has not kept us waiting. And so in verse, chapter 26, verses 1 through 4, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep the one in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because they trust in you. Trust in Yahweh forever, for Yahweh, Yahweh is an everlasting rock. On that day, this song will be sung. On this day, that song will will be sung. Not that creed recited, not that theology taught, not that philosophical system understood and finely tuned. This song will be sung, the bursting out of joy from hearts abounding in thanksgiving. So as we hear Isaiah's revelation, Isaiah's apocalypse, I hope it whets your appetite. I hope it causes you to long for that day. We are taught in the New Testament over and over again to hasten the day, to pray for the day. Jesus taught us to pray this way, thy kingdom come, 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we exist in this tension of what theologians call the already and the not yet. We are in the here and now, not the there and then. And so our hope is still unseen. Isaiah 26, 9, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. But if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of Yahweh. That's where we live, right? When your judgments are in the earth, when we as the image bearers of God get it right, then people see you. But when we don't, people have the majesty of Yahweh obscured. And so our hearts yearn for what God is doing. And so the author of Hebrews says, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. We don't see this day yet. But the author of Hebrews doesn't leave us in despair. Do you know what comes next? But we see Jesus. We don't see it yet, but we do see Jesus. And we see Jesus in the Gospels walking on the sea. The source of terror and chaos. He doesn't just calm the storm. He tromples all over the sea, gets into the boat, and the storm is instantly quieted, and the disciples are terrified. Who is this that the forces of chaos obey his word? The author of Hebrews tells us also that Jesus' blood cries out with a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out, and we're going to have more to say about Abel's blood later on. But Jesus' blood cries out. Abel's blood cries out for a curse and judgment and vengeance. And Jesus' blood cries out for mercy and salvation. The grave tried to swallow him, but he swallows death. Forgive me, I didn't get to the best part of chapter 25, verse 7. I was so excited about the feast. He will swallow up death on this mountain. He will swallow up death forever. The grave is a swallower but Jesus swallows up death forever. And we are the heirs of that. God poured out the Spirit into us on Pentecost, and for the last 2,000 years, we have had the capacity to give the world a foretaste, a glimpse of that day. So I invite you to hold out your hands and receive this good word from Teresa of Avila. Let nothing upset you, let nothing startle you. All things pass. God does not change. Patience wins all it seeks. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone is enough. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are enough. We thank you that we can have confidence that on that day you will bring to fruition all of your good promises for all of your people throughout all the earth. We ask that by your spirit we would live in eager anticipation of that day and provide glimpses of it to everyone around us. Thank you for this time and this place, for the beauty of the day, for the rain holding off. And we ask these things because of Jesus. Amen.